News. 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 New York City. FAQ. Welcome to FAQ NYC. This is producer Alex Brooklyn, and as usual, I am joined by Harry Siegel and Professor Christina Greer. Today, we're talking about sex crimes in Smalbany. That's right, sexual harassment in Albany. And our guest is Alexis Grinnell. She's an opinion writer. She's got some great opinions. Then we speak with Erica Vladimir and Leah Hebert, two former New York State legislative employees who experienced and witnessed and reported sexual harassment. They started an organization called the Sexual Harassment Working Group. After that, we talk with Victoria Bikempis on what's going on in New York courts this week. At the end of it all, I'll run off a few other things that are going on in NYC that you should probably know about so you can sound smart at your holiday parties this weekend. Today's episode is about sexual harassment and assault in Albany and the corrupt culture that covers it up. It's a big topic to illustrate exactly how big. Consider this timeline of just some of what's happened in the last quarter century. 1992, Governor Mario Cuomo creates a task force on sexual harassment where Charmian Neary testified that Assemblyman Mark Allen Siegel took away her job as an aide after she rejected his advances. 1993, Assemblymember Erlene Hill said three different male colleagues had sexually harassed her, including one on the same day lawmakers had a training about sexual harassment. 1995, new Assembly Speaker Shelley Silver quietly paid Neary 85000 to settle her lawsuit against the Assembly. 2001, 25-year-old Elizabeth Crowthers accused Silver's counsel, J. Michael Boxley, of date rape. Silver pressed her not to go to the police, and an assembly internal investigation dismissed her claims. 2003, Boxley was arrested for raping a 22-year-old staffer. He pleaded to a misdemeanor after confessing that, on the evening, I had sexual intercourse, and there was no consent. Silver paid that staffer more than half a million dollars. 2005, Boxley had his law license restored. As a New York court found, he, quote, possesses the character and general fitness to resume the practice of law. A few years after that, he joined a top lobbying firm where he made a very good living talking to his old boss, Silver, about his clients' needs. Side note, Boxley worked for that firm with lots of access to state politicians until FAQ's guest this week, Alexis Grinnell, called out the arrangement earlier this year. After that, Boxley quietly left to explore other opportunities. 2008, Assemblyman Sam Hoyt is censured for an affair with an intern and barred from having interns. 2012, State Assemblyman and Brooklyn Democratic Party boss Vito Lopez was accused of harassing two women in his district office. 2012, Silver vaguely apologizes after a report from the Staten Island DA details how he enabled a culture of harassment and assault in the Assembly, including paying off victims who then signed non-disclosure agreements. Speaker Sheldon Silver. I accept the criticism and deeply regret not referring the original complaint to the Assembly Ethics and Guidance Committee. And for this, I am sorry. 2013. People say, I think the speaker should resign for what he, the way he handled it. I said, I don't. 2013. Lopez is censured and finally steps down as two more staff members who've been harassed and groped by him, 27-year-old Victoria Burhans and 25-year-old Chloe Rivera, Sue Lopez, Silver, and the Assembly itself. 2014, Assemblyman Dennis Gabrasek steps down after seven women in his office accuse him of sexual harassment. 2014, Cuomo ally and head of the state's so-called Independent Democratic Conference, Jeff Klein, tried to stick his tongue 
down staffer Erica Vladimir's throat outside a bar, even as his girlfriend and fellow state senator Diane Savino was inside it. You'll be hearing from Vladimir later in this episode. 2014, Assemblyman Micah Kellner is publicly outed for having previously harassed both men and women on his staff. Cuomo fires one of his lawyers who didn't investigate one woman's claims five years earlier. 2015, New York State pays more than half a million dollars more than half a million dollars. to settle two women's claims against Lopez, Silver, and the Assembly. 2017, the Assembly scolds a member, Steve McLaughlin, for trying to get nude photos from an Albany staffer. They say he can't have any more interns, which doesn't matter much because he was leaving for a new job. 2017, veteran reporter Karen DeWitt asked Governor Andy Cuomo about Albany's chronic sexual harassment, and Cuomo rips into her. Okay, understand, understand just the breadth of the thing. problem. You just like but you're, name one no. thing. No, it's called the state of the state. Come okay. and cover it All and right. see the agenda. 2018, January 10th, Erica Vladimir goes public with her account of Jeff Klein's unwanted advance four years earlier. 2018, you remember harassing Assemblyman Sam Hoyt from way back in 2008? Well, he has a big job for Cuomo now, and a state investigation cleared him of harassing, assaulting, and threatening a woman he did have an affair with and helped to get a state job in that new gig. 2018. In the spring of this year, Governor Cuomo met behind closed doors with three other men, including Jeff Klein, and came out to announce that he had a deal for new harassment laws in the state. Here's a new complex issue. Let's see if we can tackle it first and come up with a solution. And we have the nation's most aggressive anti-sexual harassment agenda. Now, an organization including seven former Albany staffers who've been harassed themselves are calling to have the laws revived. The organization is called the, the Sexual, Sexual Harassment, harassment Working, Working Group. Group. Here to talk with us about it is Alexis Grinnell. So, Alexis, the governor has declared victory on sexual harassment. I know, he solved it. Yes. Mission accomplished. It's, it's over. Why in the world would someone have the audacity to say that they have solved what we can quite frankly call a borderline crisis in Albany? What motivated the governor to essentially put on his George Bush onesie and fly in and say, mission accomplished? <laughs> I believe it's called a flight suit, Chrissy, oh. not a onesie. <laughs> but, you know, I, I know, I get what you're talking about. My guess is that politically, he wanted to declare victory heading into the election cycle, coming off of a major, the sort of onset of the Me Too crisis, which has now sort of morphed into a full-on movement. It's not a moment. It's not a, a blip in time. It is a radical realtering of bounds of what's acceptable and also how we understand women at work and uh, men at work. So I think politically he wanted to declare victory, move on, and uh, take credit for solving a, the problem of systematic sexual harassment. He's declared these to be the strongest laws in the nation, despite the fact that the National Employment Lawyers Association has said they are not, and they are, of course, experts, because these are the people who represent victims of sexual harassment, and seven women who were sexually harassed in the legislature who formed something called the Sexual Harassment Working Group actually went through the trouble in their free time to research and develop a working paper, a white paper, rather, that analyzes New York state laws and makes recommendations. And they themselves have said repeatedly, these laws are not the strongest in the nation. Not only that, they would not have protected us mm -hmm. here in New York. They've asked for public hearings. It's uh, day 222 since they first asked for them. And so for all the governor's lip service, frankly, to the importance of centering women's voices and experiences and hearing from women, he has yet to show any interest in doing that here in New York. Well, he also put the the onus on the journalists. He says, you know, 
You're the journalist, do something about it. I might argue that you've been writing about this since 2012. So can you tell our listeners, why did you start writing about it in 2012? You know, I'm not a professional journalist. I've been writing a column once a month or more for the past seven years. Uh, So I write opinion. And it was my opinion in 2012 when I learned about the Vito Lopez scandal that this issue was sort of not being told from the perspective perspective of the women who were going through it, they were mostly being hounded and harassed by tabloid media. And the context for their harassment was completely lost. So I got to know these women. I met them. I talked to them. Um, I kept their confidence. And I tried to write about this issue in a way that did justice to them and put the issue in context, as opposed to sensationalizing it as a scandal and like sort of a fun story about people in power, which of course it's not. And we now understand that this is not how you write about survivors. This is not how you write about sexual harassment. But back then it meant sitting outside of somebody's apartment and stalking them for hours or days at a time. I mean, the women I know had to actually climb over their roofs to escape the thundering hordes at their front door. It was frankly my honor to have their confidence and my privilege to be able to to hear from them and try to write about them in a way that was respectful and true to their experience. So do you think journalism has changed a lot uh, about the way they cover sexual assault? Yeah, I think it's in the process of changing, actually. What's amazing is that when... Erica Vladimir came forward on January 10th, 2018. She did so in a beautiful Huffington Post story. She then sat for a New York One interview. um, And it was sort of this, she didn't experience any of the stalking that was typical of her predecessors. The women who came forward previously actually contended with an incredibly hostile and aggressive press corps that re-traumatized them in many ways. And they wound up on the front page of newspapers as they sort of eschewed photographers and covered their eyes. It was um, an awful experience for them, whereas, frankly, Erica's was overwhelmingly positive. Now, when you when you first started writing these stories, though, did they get traction? I mean, did you find that, you know, other journalists were sort of Picking up your opinion pieces and trying to delve deeper? Well, and all due to respect, I'm again, I'm an opinion columnist. There was news coverage. The news coverage, though, was overwhelmingly uh, sensationalized and often very negative so that, um, you know, you had stories writing about a scandal. But if you actually talk to the women, they would tell you it's very stigmatizing to refer to them as what happened mm-hmm. as what happened to them as a scandal, because that implies a level of participation. Mm-hmm. It also implies uh, a sexual relationship some sort of parity, equality in that interaction and exchange, when in fact what they were were systematically victimized by their employer. Can you remember any uh, like specific examples that were splashed across the front page in this scandalous tabloid kind of way? Sure. Leah Hebert uh, wound up twice on the cover of the New York Post. Um, and I, I think, it, I can't even remember, I can't remember the headline was exactly, but there was some implication of sort of sex kitten. I mean, this is a woman who was suing her employer for sexual harassment. What was she doing on the front page of a newspaper, shielding her eyes, uh, resisting the invasion of her privacy? Mm-hmm. It was absurd. And the assembly in the meantime, right, while well, the press is stalking these women sometimes and outing them in ways they don't want to be and looking for these juicy details, the assembly under Silver is trying to get them to sign... NDAs to keep this stuff totally under the table, to have no one know that these women even 
exist at all who right. are pressing these claims. Right. Just to be f- completely fair, yes, there have been an evo- there's been an evolution in how journalists have covered this from from terrible to much better. Uh, but I mean, government I would say hasn't evolved that much at all. In fact. To your point, when um, Shelley Silver was apologizing, surrounded by his assembly colleagues at a big fancy press conference for silencing sexual harassment victims, his lawyers were also in court uh, resisting a lawsuit that would have held them responsible as an employer for sexual harassment. And whereas, again, the governor has sort of declared victory on sexual harassment, claiming to have the strongest laws in the nation, New York, there are still so many awful gaping loopholes. The legislation that was passed as part of the budget last year barely scratches the surface. Can you walk our listeners through some of the loopholes that are particularly glaring? Well, I think one that's immediately relevant is the fact that personal staff of an elected official is is currently exempt under the human rights law, uh, which is why the Assembly was able to argue in court that they are not an employer liable for what happened. Shelley could say, even though I knew and and settled a claim with two women who'd previously accused Vito Lopez of sexual harassment, that information does not make me liable for the mm. second set of women who were harassed because I did nothing. A judge ruled against him and said, no, buddy, you're totally yeah. liable. What the hell are you talking about? But the the law has not been clarified mm-hmm. to make that just a matter of fact as opposed to judgment. In, in New York State, right now, you have to prove that you've been repeatedly and pervasively and severely harassed at work. It's not just a little bit of harassment. You need a lot right. of harassment to Stick make a case. Stick around in this horrible job just to make sure you can build a case. Right. That's abs- an absurd standard. It should be changed. So the Founding Fathers have, like, the Constitution. Albany has the Bear Mountain Compact. Right. What happens in Albany stays in Albany, or which is everything about north of Bear Mountain is off the record, essentially. Is that structurally changing? I don't see that really changing in a meaningful way. The problem is what you still don't have is actual recourse. So the Assembly actually has a pretty good sexual harassment policy. The Senate's is trash. I expect that to change with the new incoming Democratic Senate because the previous policy was written to protect Jeff Klein, uh, who's no longer in office. But more importantly, the process by which one reports harassment and has that investigated is sort of myriad and mushy and doesn't properly resolve um, the issue for the victim. So Jacob is currently an entity that has jurisdiction to investigate sexual harassment, which is insane. Also, when we consider that there are exactly one, this one woman on Jacob and it's made up almost entirely of men, including men who've been involved in previous sexual harassment settlements. And Jacob is? The Joint Commission on Public Ethics. So it's an oversight body that technically has some kind of jurisdiction, although it was not designed to deal with sexual harassment, nor is it equipped to, frankly. Erica came forward in January. Jacob opened an investigation a few months later. Here we are nearly a year later, and she does not have a resolution. There's certainly no public resolution. Yes, Jeff Klein is out of office, but that doesn't negate the need to have an investigation and reveal findings. So what do you think needs to happen? A number of things. Right. So first and foremost, uh, I think Albany needs to get real and stop pretending like they've solved this crisis. They haven't. There's a lot of things legally that can be changed. The Sexual Harassment Working Group has gone through all the trouble to outline those things, produced a a paper, and put it online. So (laughs) people who have already done this work unpaid, which is no surprise. And if listeners want to look at that white paper that you've referred to. Harassment free albany.com. It's 13 pages. It's brilliantly written. It's well-sourced and cited. You can learn a lot. The laws that were passed need to be revised as well. So whereas 
the governor likes to hang his hat on this issue of of uh, reforming non-disclosure agreements so that an NDA cannot be entered into unless it's at the victim's request. That is a very hard boundary to police because mm-hmm. you can say to the victim in negotiations, like, well, we are willing to agree to all these terms, X, Y, and Z, and sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, wouldn't it be great if you entered into an NDA? But NDAs have to have parameters around them so that they cannot include liquidated damages. Currently, Leah and Rita, who are speaking out publicly as part of the Sexual Harassment Working Group, are doing that in violation of their non-disclosure agreement, which is with the Assembly. Frankly, the Assembly could let them out of it. And they're liable of up to $20,000 in damages. We were wondering before this started, is anyone going to dare try and call them on that? I doubt it. And they're taking a well-calculated risk. It was an incredibly um, punitive NDA that included liquidated damages, but also said that they could not talk about it with anyone other than a lawyer or an accountant. So that meant that they were essentially handcuffed and bound from discussing their own experience, Mm -hmm. including with potential other employees. That's devastating. Do you have any um, excitement about Andrea Stewart-Cousins as the leader of the Senate? Because you mentioned the Assembly is is much better than the Senate. Last week, she said in a radio interview that, yeah, I think we should have public hearings on sexual harassment. She is the first sitting elected official to say that, which is shocking and is insane. Um, During the campaign season, Cynthia Nixon and Zephyr Teachout both stood with sexual harassment working group to say, like, we need public hearings, obviously. Um, but Andrea is the first person to say, yeah, we should do it. And now I'm going to watch her, watch and wait. But was it before or after the allegations against Jeff Klein that she endorsed him? After. So that's certainly something that the I know the working group was very disappointed to see. And they expressed that. And you know, I, I, I can't, I'm, I'm sorry she did in many ways, um, but she did. And somebody should ask her about that. Now that the Democrats have unified government, I mean, that is if we consider Andrew Cuomo a Democrat, but there is unified government. So one would think it would be almost a no brainer that Democrats would be able to easily pass essentially all of the things that you've listed. What will be the obstacles Politicians are very careful about not embarrassing each other. Politicians in the same party all the more so, in particular, because they need things from each other uh, that aren't all related to the public interest. I mean, I think part of the reason why we're even seeing hearings at all in New Jersey is because Republicans wanted to embarrass Democrats after Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, it doesn't really matter why it's happening. It's good that we're seeing uh, Mm -hmm. the hearing in New Jersey, but it started pretty much because they wanted to embarrass them. So Shelley Silver was in charge for 22 years. He signed off on seven figures of settlements with NDAs around lots of, right? And then when Silver finally went down for unrelated crimes, for, for, for stealing from the public for that whole time, you know, it turns out that, that he had his own Bear Mountain Compact stuff, that, mm-hmm. that, that he was sleeping with one lawmaker, he was sleeping with the lobbyist who'd formerly been on his staff, who was the highest paid lobbyist in the state. This just seems like, and this is a Democrat, like a culture that, that is built not to police itself, but to, to cover for itself. So, oh, completely. I just want to note here that a lot of progressive institutions and so-called progressive lawmakers were all too happy to back up Shelley Silver and be like, well, he's passed so many good bills that I care about. Please. I, this is, I, I, I wrote this at the time, and I still have zero patience for anybody who was like, Shelly Silver's my boy, after it was flat out public information that he had covered up rape, 
sexual harassment, sexual assault, and stifled women with the most abusive and punitive non-disclosure agreements. So I don't care if you have the word progressive in your organization, in your self-appointed identity. If you were all too happy to like, you know, back up Shelly Silver, you said that women were expendable. Mm -hmm. You should be sorry about that in some sort of public, you know, recognition that that was wrong. And that's why I started writing about it in 2012. Nobody was saying this is wrong. And that was crazy to me that everybody was going to back up this guy because, you know, he supported the right bills because his politics were good. It was a clear directive to women at work in Albany that your lives, your safety does not matter in service to the greater good. You started writing about this in 2012. That was the year after serial rapist uh, and a former uh, silver staffer got hired by one of Albany's top lobbying firms. Michael Boxley. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was outrageous. That blew my mind. And, and when I remember finding out about that and being just amazed that Michael Boxley, to be clear, uh, was accused by two women of rape, hauled out of the assembly in handcuffs, and then settled with the DA on lesser charges. But I, in that settlement agreement, admitted to having sex with a woman without her consent. That, that's public information. You can look it up now. That means a lobbying firm, after all that had happened, thought, okay, cool. No biggie. We'll bring this guy back to lobby the same institution he was ejected from. Although, actually, let me be more precise. Allowed to resign from. He was not fired. And by the way, being allowed to resign is a privilege. Mm-hmm. And when the first set of claims about him came out from uh, from Elizabeth Crothers. That was 2001. Silver pressed or not. So this is the leader of the assembly says, don't go to the police. Uh, the assembly investigates, uh, strong scare quotes, and dismisses her claims. And then it's two years later that he's taken out in cuffs. After, and, yeah. after Jane Doe, a second victim, comes forward. Yeah. No, Elizabeth Crothers, who's, who's amazing and was raped in 2001 and maintains she was, was told point blank by the assembly speaker that his first priority was to protect the institution over her. Is there a path to redemption, not not for Boxley, but for some of these people who have done wrong things and participated in this culture, who maybe haven't been outed yet and are still there? I think it really depends, frankly, on the the offense. I think that for some people, there is a path to resolution, but it begins, frankly, with a whole lot more um, acknowledgement of the scope of their transgressions. For people who've committed crimes, who've gone unpunished, no, I'm not interested in any path to resolution or comeback or whatever. If you've been getting away with a crime for years, that's You've all you've been you're winning already, and it, we, I have no need to redeem you in any way. But some people and who are who are accessories or who are people who committed some sort of transgression that is non-actionable, that's a, that's a murkier conversation. Um, and I'm interested in having it because I think that there is a pathway to resolution. I don't think that there has to be a permanent banishment for everyone. Do you think it's a bit cart before the horse that a lot of people are jumping to, wait, what's the path to oh. uh, redemption before we even have... Yeah, of course. I, I think. I mean, I think we we saw this flurry of of comeback attempts uh, in the sort of f- spring. I think it was from like and recently Louis C.K. who masturbated in front of female comics and and then and who are female colleagues who are colleagues and mm-hmm. comics and then you know tried to like squash them from speaking out. We see from Mario Batali like who was like gonna go I don't know serve soup in Africa and then you know was like actually never mind I'm just gonna retire to the Amalfi Coast. <laughs> to like, your point though like being a comic and being a chef is a lot different than being a lawmaker. Is it so crazy to expect 
more from lawmakers, people who don't make laws, entertainers, sh- you know, people in restaurants. You know, like, I, don't, it- I actually don't make that distinction. People are in positions of power. I would say Mario Batali is a lot more, frankly, powerful than a you know freshman assemblyman <sighs> or fr- a rank and file member of the legislature. Like Mario Batali ran a restaurant empire and made millions of dollars and controlled like acts. and hung out at the White House making meals. Yeah, so like no, I don't I don't agree with that necessarily. <laughs> but but, spe- but putting it in context. Mario Batali, unlike Jeff Klein, is not in the room with Andrew Cuomo crafting the laws. I think Mario Batali has plenty of, had plenty of access, and I actually would argue that I don't I don't actually agree with this necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Tell, but please go on. No, I'm saying that you know, rich and powerful men don't have to be in the legislature, frankly, to have more power than lawmakers. Right. I think the big takeaway from Me Too in general has been that women have been forced to stifle the full extent of their humanity and service to the desires, whims, and in some cases, criminality of the men they work with or work for. That's dehumanizing and demoralizing. I'm trying to be optimistic with unified government. No, I actually think unified... I'm... I, I, the unified I, government can work against us in a lot of ways. I mean, it was Mark, right? I feel, I feel optimistic, frankly, that the Senate majority, the incoming Senate majority leader, Andrea Stewart Cousins, has said, yeah, you know, we should have public hearings. I'm happy about that. She didn't have to do that. It's already, I, I, I want to see her make it happen now, and I'm thrilled to see her taking that step. But I totally agree. Unified government can work against us in ways that arguably consolidate power even more. The Republican running against Andrew Cuomo also called for public hearings. Yeah, again, I that's that's Do you think that was pandering campaign stuff? I, look, Mark Molinero also had no problem taking the Reform Party line. Curtis Slewa openly stood up in front of a room of Queens County Republicans and gave out his ex's address, aka the Queensboro president, Melinda Katz, and told them all to go harass her. He's systematically sexually harassed women on his radio show, including the former speaker of the city council, Melissa Mark Viverito. So, you know, like I'm happy Mark Molinero said something. I just don't give it that much credence. He was palling around with Curtis Lee one no problem and he wasn't going to be governor she is going to be majority leader right how does Curtis Lee still have a job amazing he has a lot of uh, child support to pay and alimony to pay <laughs> and he has like seven hustles and he works furiously because he makes a shit ton of money and he still can't pay his damn bills right but I get he's got debt that's on him but I'm saying how do you have a job it's incredible you have a long history of harassing women and you have a platform on New York One. Like, I don't I don't understand it. Alexis, could you actually go through for us maybe, like, some of the people that still have jobs? Um, fun list. Fun, fun list. <sighs> Sam Hoyt, former assemblyman who was censured by the assembly for having an affair with an intern, was then promoted by the governor, uh, given a huge salary bump to run economic development out of Western New York, uh, retired voluntarily from that position, was sued for sexual harassment shortly thereafter, is now uh, the founder and president of his own lobbying firm. Michael Boxley, again, was a lobbyist at Brown and Weinraub for um, a decade and until, uh, you know, recently, again, left of his own accord, seemingly. Again, I want to point out yeah, that, yeah, that... This, is, this we, is what is making my blood boil and makes me want to eat glass. These guys aren't fired. How these powerful men are never fired. They are they are politely asked to leave. They leave on their own accord. Some of them actually make more money on the way out the door. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, Jeff Klein lost his job, like lost his reelection campaign, which is awesome. Um, I'm sure he will have a job somewhere. Um, 
that's not to say he shouldn't, by the way. I don't think he should be like permanently banned from making a living of some kind. But let's see what it is. I would hate to see him become a lobbyist because that would be the ultimate sort of acceptance of what he did. Andrew Cuomo crafted the so-called strongest laws in the nation behind closed doors with a man who was accused of sexual harassment. Right. So the fact that that was not perceived to be a problem by the governor um, sends a strong message, I think, to a lot of people still in government that, hey, it's it's really not that big a deal. And also, by the way, since we've now solved the problem of Me Too in New York, we've moved on. So let's all get back to what we were doing before. January 10th is when Erica came forward, is when Erica came forward to talk about Jeff Klein. January 11th is when Governor Cuomo unveiled his 2018 Women's Agenda for New York, Equal Rights, Equal Opportunity, which, incidentally, was a repeat of his earlier Women's Agenda, which was stalled despite his quote-unquote best efforts in part because of Klein's alliance with uh, with Republicans in the state Senate. Right, you're but referring to the Women's Equality Agenda, right, and efforts to get uh, the Reproductive Health Act passed, which Senate Republicans blocked in part with assistance from the IDC. But the IDC, headed by the guy that then crafted the laws behind closed doors that now Cuomo hangs his hat on saying that it's a victory over sexual harassment and sexual assault. The founder of the Women's Equality Party, I mean, literally the day after his ally is accused, is, is coming out with this agenda. It's The founder of the Women's Equality Party, who is a dude. F-A-Q. I'm Erica Vladimir. I am... One of the co-founders of the Sexual Harassment Working Group, which is a group of seven former legislative state staffers, all who either experienced or witnessed sexual harassment or assault. And what are you guys doing? We are advocating for mainly two things. So first and foremost, um, stronger sexual harassment protections for all New York state workers. Um, But in order to get there, we recognize the importance of having victims as part of the conversation. The only way our legislation, our laws, can be truly the strongest in the nation is when they're victim-centered, and that means bringing victims to the table. And a big part of that is holding public hearings. So right now we're really advocating for our state legislature to hold those public hearings. For me personally, I came out last January Um, to tell my story of sexual harassment when Senator Jeff Klein forcibly kissed me after a night of budget negotiations and the budget being passed. I had thought that I was able to deal with it myself by leaving the state Senate and not really talking to anybody publicly or reporting it. Like most people in the nation, I was really rocked by the Harvey Weinstein stories. I found myself literally on my apartment floor shaking and realizing that I had made a terrible mistake by not coming forward, um, that I had put other people, um, especially female staffers, in potential danger. And I felt a responsibility to come out with my story and and not allow him to continue legislating um, and running the IDC and being part of very critical negotiations. And after I came out, I was fortunate to meet the other members of the working group. We all had a lot of the same concerns about the legislation that we saw coming, you know, out of the governor's office, out of the state Senate, and realizing that there were so many details and nuances that they weren't paying attention to because they didn't give victims the time to be able to speak to them and help them craft meaningful 
laws. Um, it was the process that, that was really flawed. I think that our legislature and our governor saw an opportunity before a major election season to be able to hang a mission accomplished sign. And there were better ways to go about doing it. But as long as they could get that sign hung before the elections, it was going to look good for them. What in particular do you think it will do to have victims speak in public hearings. How exactly will that help? There are a few things that public hearings will do. Um, First and foremost, it will show what uh, is known as institutional courage. There's a woman, Dr. Jennifer Freyd, who talks about institutional courage and the willingness of institutions such as the government to be able to step up um, and protect the vulnerable workers, uh, including victims of sexual harassment, by opening up themselves to sit in that discomfort with the victims in a public space will show New Yorkers across the whole state that our legislature is willing to work with us on something that's been such an uncomfortable topic to talk about in the public sphere. I mean, that's a big problem, right? That like people get uncomfortable. Yeah. And that makes the victim uncomfortable. Nobody wants to make everyone else uncomfortable, especially when your career hangs on it. Nobody wants to seem like the person in the room sucking the air out. And and chances are there's there there's more than one person in that room who feels that way. And nobody yeah. wants to be that first person and not feel to, shame to come right or embarrassment and, or like that weird exactly. always everything awkward. And there's always a couple people in the room that want to make it awkward mm-hmm. because they want to shut it down because it gives makes them, them discomfort. Right. Makes them feel uncomfortable, but we have to get rid of that stigma of shame. You had talked to me about how, in listening to the exact nature of the assault or harassment, that legislatures could better craft laws that responded to the nuances of the nature of the crime. Right. right? Um, could you can you give me one example of? something that you guys are proposing that you feel was left out. There is a standard that New York follows. Um, It's the federal standard when it comes to bringing a lawsuit uh, for sexual harassment under a hostile work environment. It's called severe or pervasive. What this means is that in order to be awarded damages for some type of harassment that you experience, you have to show that it was either severe enough in one instance or it was pervasive enough in multiple instances. This is a really high bar for any victim to be able to overcome. Um, You mean the proof? Yes, the proof. So we saw it in New York City. New York City has actually brought down their level of proof to um, verse, instead of severe or pervasive, the victim has to prove that they were treated less well than what they deserve to be treated as. The severe or pervasive standard is really, it's, it's a really hard level of proof These to accomplish. These definitions all seem very nebulous. It is if very. If I'm honest. Yes. You know, who is the judge of what, if someone has enough proof to prove pervasive? The, the judge or the jury. It, it in would that be, instance. Yeah. In, so there's in, no standard. There, there really is no standard. The standard itself is severe or pervasive, but by after that, it's taken on a case-by-case basis. So it's the standard severe or pervasive, but the definition of severe or pervasive yes. shifts from jury to jury, from judge to judge. Right. Just in 2018, the Capital District Transit Authority, there was a lawsuit against them for a sexual harassment hostile work environment. 
and it had examples of butt smacking and dirty talk and you know it was clearly pervasive and Proof, on some level with witnesses yes. and all of it oh absolutely and the judge said it didn't rise to the level of severe or pervasive butt slapping does not rise to the level of severe or pervasive correct that's and this is 2018 that's a lot to digest right and i would say the same thing about my specific instance of harassment a senator forcing his tongue in my mouth to me was very severe it was traumatizing even more traumatizing than i realized at the you know when it actually happened that in court may not necessarily hold up to being severe because some people would argue that it's just an unwanted kiss so when you frame it in different ways it's very easy to manipulate whether it falls under the severe or pervasive standard. In talking about the residual effects of someone forcing any part of themselves on any part of yourself, I don't know as if a lot of people who haven't experienced that really understand to the level physical recall can cause extreme mental anguish Absolutely. from rage to self-deprecating thoughts. I don't know if people quite understand the effect something like that has on a person. Yeah, and, and when you lay on, on top of that, this power dynamic that, ex that existed, this was a senator, a, it was an abuse of power for him to just think that he could do what he wanted to me physically. It was the first time in my life that I took on this responsibility for something that I had no control over. I began to doubt everything about myself and everything I had done to make myself into this professional, into someone who has an aspiring career in government. And it really fucked me up mentally. It was something where I felt like I did something wrong that I needed to look in the mirror and start doubting myself and start changing my own ways. And I was ashamed. It took a while for me to be able to attach that word shame to it because I had honestly never felt something to that level before. And what does shame look like, or feel like? How did it manifest for you? I know how it has manifested for me very physically, but how is it man how did it manifest for you and I'm sure a lot of other young women in Albany who are very attached to their career, especially in politics. What are some of the actual consequences for young women and men who've been assaulted? Well, you just hit the nail on the head with this idea of someone who's working in politics and government really associating themselves with their career. I doubted my choice. I went to law school to work in government. And in an instant, I was made to believe that New York government was no longer a place for me. And I had to reevaluate all of the career choices that I had made and wanted to make in the future. And I ended up leaving the state Senate. I, and not just the state Senate, I ended up leaving government because I felt like that was the only way that I was going to be able to make myself whole. Do you think a lot of people feel like, a lot, a lot of uh, victims feel like, well, this is what it takes to be in the game? Yeah. And I couldn't hack it. Absolutely. Yeah, this is the expectation. I mean, 
we have colloquialisms for this. It's called the Bear Mountain Compact. It's this idea that this is this is the culture that exists and it's going to continue to exist and that's the way it is. And if you want to succeed in Albany, then you have to hack it. You have to deal with this. Do you think having the New York State Senate led by a woman, Andrea Stewart Cousins, do you think that's going to make a difference? I think it could make a difference because of who Senator Andrea Stewart Cousins is. Not by default because she's a woman. I think we're starting to have this idea that because someone is a woman that they they have a, a better they're going to protect victims more. We've seen that that's not the case. Brett Kavanaugh. Right. Ex- exactly. Miss Susan Collins. Yes. See you in the comments. <laughs> so um, but, you know, Senator Stewart Cousins signed on to Senator Liz Kruger's letter requesting Senator Flanagan to hold public hearings. She came out as recently as last week saying that, you know, she's open to reevaluating the laws that were passed in April and that public hearings would be a form for us to see what we can change. She can lead the Senate and hopefully, you know, bring the assembly on board so that both chambers have the opportunity to hold joint legislative hearing and hear from victims. Any response from Cuomo on this? Is he open? Have you guys talked? <laughs> or is he just like, no, I fixed it, and I don't want people to say I didn't fix it because I fixed it. He's a little more attached to the mission accomplished banner. Um, he has, you know, mentioned that, you know, this is an, an evolving issue and that it's something that, you know, we probably would want to take a look at. Have you guys been able to communicate with him? Um, no. Hmm. Um, we're, we, we've tried publicly. We've tried to reach out, but this is a new session. It's a, it's a new day, as a lot of people have been calling it. And so we're going to really try and take advantage of that. That feels like it's going to change the culture a little bit. When you exactly. like suck the weirdness out of talking about trauma and how really messed up some things can feel people in a weird way feel safe hearing it right you know yeah for some reason a lot of people feel like so unsafe when they hear other people's stories they don't know if they're going to be judged they don't know how their reaction should be they're thinking so much about what they should be doing that they really almost can't hear the other person we can't break the stigma we can't you can't be like feel less awkward about this but we're not going to actually have to put it into practice where we talk about feeling you know like we talk about the thing we're asking you to feel less awkward about. exactly exactly and not for nothing but our new york state elected officials owe us this. We saw them stand for Dr. Blasey Ford. We saw them stand with their posters saying, I stand with her. And rightfully so. She deserves that support. So do the victims in their own backyard. Mm. Where were where were the elected officials when I came out with my story? Where, where were, were the elected officials? You know, it was... Let's see what happens with JCO, uh, the Joint Commission on Public Ethics. You know, when people such as Andrea Stewart Cousins and Governor Cuomo and even Senator Flanagan were asked, you know, do you believe her or how do you feel about this? It was we're going to wait to see what Jacob says. That's on top of things and comments such as Senator Flanagan's of he knows Klein to be a good man and he takes him at his word. This is also in conjunction with Senator Stewart Cousins endorsing Senator Klein. All of this happened 
And then you see them standing with their posters talking publicly about how we need to believe Dr. Blasey Ford, that there needs to be a, a, a much slower process and a better investigation. And yet I didn't get that support. A lot of other victims don't get that support. And so we know we have we know that they have it in them to to stand behind victims and to have the desire to have a better um, well-vetted process when but it what comes we to don't protecting know workers. Is if, what we honestly don't know is if they have it in them when it could yes. possibly cost them consequences in their own backyard. HarassmentFreeAlbany.com My name is Leah Eber, and I am a um, public policy advocate. I formerly was Vita Lopez, who was the Assembly Housing Chair and also the head of the, of the Brooklyn Democratic Party. I was his chief of staff in 2011. What is SOMOS? Okay, so, so, I mean, like, SOMOS is the, the political conference that happens every year right after the election. Um, it is always in Puerto Rico. There's there's the, the literal definition, and then there's the, like, reality of, of what it is. Um, do you want me to tell you the reality of what it is? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you I, know the actual definition. I mean, <laughs> I, I'd love to know the reality of what it is. So, yeah. so well, the reality of what it is is essentially almost like a networking vacation for, like, of officials that they can use their campaign accounts to pay for. That happens right after the election. I got promoted with like by that September. Um, and you know, like Somos is always like in November, like right after the election, um, to Chief of Staff. So he had already started the harassment by then. And then he essentially like tried to require that I share a hotel room with him. And I refused and like basically said I would pay for it myself. I'd pay for my own room because his first thing was like, it was too expensive to get your own room. We need to share a room. And I was like, no, that's okay. I'll just pay for it on my own pocket to go. And then he just like said some crazy nonsense about like he has cancer and like if something happens he doesn't want to be like finding me all over the hotel and our phones might not work and so we agreed upon separate rooms and then like he called me that weekend and basically threatened to fire me if I didn't go with him and share a hotel room and that he had to like rethink me being chief of staff and so I said I didn't feel comfortable and that like you know my boyfriend would be really that I lived with would be really upset if I did that trying to like use every excuse like I even like set a figure of speech of like oh my my boyfriend would like kill me if I did that and then like the next week he took me out of all these meetings like unless my boyfriend was coming I couldn't go to meetings and like like sat there and like berated me for hours saying that like you know he was telling people that I was having problems at home and then like you know my boyfriend was beating me it was just like it was craziness like the man was like certifiably insane um to the point where like my staff afterwards were like are you okay and I just like could not believe any of this was happening anyways he ended up taking my coworker. she went on the trip with him um and when she got down there he pressured her into sharing a hotel room with him he invited her to his room a couple times she refused and then at one point like he he gave her a post-it note that said that this trip would be a trial period for um, an affair. Um, and then when my coworker came back, she essentially said that everybody was completely drunk, that Vito was really drunk, and that he put his hand on her leg and that it made her feel really uncomfortable, um, and then made other gestures at her that, that made her feel really uncomfortable. 
I mean, this is like the Bear Mountain Compact times 10 because it's not even, you know, in New York. It's whatever happens in SOMO stays in SOMO. Um, and so it's, it's, it's that kind of culture, you know, just amplified. You know, looking back on like what happened to me, it still feels like I was in someone else's horror movie because it's so incredibly like traumatic and painful. With, with Vito, he had, he had a pattern. He had, his, his pattern was that he hired young women with relatively little experience who cared about the mission of like serving the public who, who were driven by that. And, you know, in one hand, like presented you with like so much opportunity to do both like advance, you know, incredible legislation um, to work with the communities that you care about and to really make impactful change. On the, on the other hand, um, you know, when the, the sexual harassment started, you know, at, at first it just felt like just such extreme betrayal because I actually like really believed in like who he was and the good and the potential that he had. And my first like very naive logical sense was let me just like clarify like where I stand with him that I only wanted something professional you know, when you come from it from a rational perspective and you think that the other person that you're dealing with is a rational actor, you would think that, you know, maybe there would be a little bit of like embarrassment or, or something, but that, that miscommunication could like get cleared up and then you could just like move forward. What I never anticipated or expected was the punishment for not agreeing to go along with what he wanted. And so immediately, like you start to recalculate your own behavior and your own steps to survive. That I'm a, a single woman, that I don't come from wealth. How do I survive this experience so that I can get a job again? In politics, your loyalty and your network is your value. And, you know, taking on a member as powerful as Vito, you're not just taking on that member, you're taking on their entire network and everything that network has to lose when you take on that person, especially if your claims are not enough to bring them down. I started to change my own behavior just to survive. So whereas, you know, at first I was like, you know, very hard and fast on saying no, I started to break down and after the punishment of just giving a little bit by little bit. You know, like, you want me to send you a text message saying how great you are? Sure. If that means that tomorrow will be easier, I will do that. He used tactics to just completely criticize, you know, everything about me, that I didn't smile enough, that I wasn't personable enough, that, that people didn't like to be around me because I wasn't joking enough, which, you know, in, in what he meant was that I wasn't flirty enough. And, you know, this also just like started to chip away at my like self-confidence um, to, to question, like just, I started questioning everything about myself. Like it became really hard to just do my, any kind of job, you know, much less like my responsibilities because it was this like constant psychological turmoil that was like happening, you know, like day after day. I know a lot of people think that in those situations, they would do better. They would do different, et cetera, et cetera. Not better, but you know, that's what a lot of people think who haven't experienced it. What stops you from getting up and being like, fuck you, bro, I'm out? 
it was slowly, it was slowly and it was over a period. I mean, it was slowly, but not that slow. Like in my head, it was like how I remember it. It was, it was like over a period of what I felt was like months, but in reality and looking back on it, it was only like a period of a couple weeks. Um, and it was the punishments. It was the punishments that came after that were just so irrational that, you know, it, it, like for, for example, it, what he would do was when I would say no, he would take me out of meetings. He would like block me from meetings so that I couldn't do my job and then give me the silent treatment and wouldn't talk to me about things. So I, I, it made me essentially like ineffective at doing my job. And so you start to change your behavior like subtly to like do things that were more pleasing to him. And then he would come back and say, okay, well now maybe we can make this work, but I'm going to ask a little bit more of you. You know, like he asked me to text him every night before I went to bed. I started doing that. I would have never have done that before, but it was like that was what I had to do to like not have a fight with him the next day where he was either like humiliating me in front of my colleagues it was starting to impact my relationship with the field which would make it make it even harder for me to go and get a job somewhere else what kind of residual trauma if any do you feel like you have from this experience so much. I mean, I, I, when I left his office, I was diagnosed with PTSD. I started having extreme like panic attacks when I worked in his office. I was losing my hair. I had, I like started developing these like really rapid heart palpitations. Like I went to the doctor like immediately, like when I left and they, they actually gave me some medication to bring down my heart rate because I thought I might go into a coma or have a heart attack. You know, I went into the assembly, my employer thinking that they were going to help me. And I think that, you know, what, what happened in the aftermath of, of reporting was it became very clear after having told my story over and over again of getting lawyers, of telling them over and over again that I was filing a form of complaint, actually sending something in writing, and then being gaslit into, into like, well, did you actually mean to file a formal complaint? Who asked you if you actually meant to file a formal complaint? It was, it was the legal counsel for the speaker. And so at that point, it became very clear. And like Vito touted his relationship with the speaker, Sheldon Silver, over and over and over again, um, you know, that, that he had held this, this long-standing relationship. It was then that like I realized like what I was up against. I wasn't just up against Vito. I was up against the speaker. And that, that brings into, you know, a completely different set of trauma and ramifications. During my mediation, um, you know, the assembly, they, they brought in these text messages that Vito required me to send him and basically said, you know, like, you have to explain this. Vito is claiming that you were the sexual aggressor against him. I was suicidal. I was so on my last leg. And I essentially like came forward because a coworker of mine who had been going to HR for a year complaining about harassment from Vito essentially told them what he was doing to me. 
when I called HR, it was like this, I felt like I was going to get help. I told them about my health conditions. I told them that I was suicidal. I told them I was so incredibly desperate. I told them about five other women who had come to me and told me about their similar experiences. And they told me they were going to help me. And I believed them to go into this point in mediation where everything is being flipped on me and all of a sudden I'm being accused as a sexual aggressor, I lost it. I completely unraveled and fell apart. I had recorded him. I had, the harassment was so egregious. I didn't feel like anyone would ever believe me. My attorneys gave them some of the most egregious recordings. They had that. In the mediation, it wasn't until the very last days that we got the NDA that not only like sought to silence us and basically say that the assembly had like no, they were not claiming any sort of responsibility. They were not claiming any sort of that veto like had done anything wrong. They tried to ban us from ever becoming employees again. My attorneys knew how fragile I was and basically said, you may not make it in court. The laws aren't strong enough. Harassmentfreealbany.com. <laughs> And now, <clears throat> and now, <clears throat> and now, to tell us what is going on with all the big crazy court cases that are going on in New York City right now is Victoria Campus. <laughs> Thank you for the intro. Courts were kind of crazy this week. The main event was the surprise appearance of former Trump consigliere Michael Cohen in Manhattan uh, federal court. Is he commonly referred to as the consigliere? I feel like I've written that in copy at some junctures. I feel like it was probably edited out. House reporters in Manhattan Federal Court, we all got this kind of vague email um, about 8 a.m. And it said there's going to be a USV John Doe proceeding at 9. Everyone rushed down to the courthouse who wasn't already there. And sure enough, it was Michael Cohen. Uh, hey. Hey. <laughs> pleading guilty to lying to Congress. Hey. Hey. <laughs> about his involvement with Trump uh, Tower Moscow. Hey. hey. <laughs> and then uh, Michael Cohen's supposed to be sentenced on the 12th. So that should be that should be interesting. We should get a sense, uh, perhaps a more of a sense of how much is he cooperating? What has he said? And we can gauge that from the sentencing. Like- it's, it's possible that the attorneys on both sides might say, hey, oh. hey, what's up? I'm in a sentencing, hey. hey. Um, we're all wearing suits, but it's cold in here. Hey. Some, at some point, you know, when the attorneys make their respective spiels in pleading for leniency, we might hear more about why he should have leniency. If, you know, if there's cooperation, the cooperation will be brought up. And then uh, fast forward to Monday, rapper Cardi B, Bodak Yellow songstress, as it were. I, lo- I love her. She's really great. I think she's really great. She was supposed to appear in Queen's Criminal Court on Monday regarding um, her alleged involvement in a strip club melee in August. Melee. I th- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> right. classing yeah. it up, as it were. So her court date on Monday, this is the rescheduled court date um, because her other one got adjourned. She doesn't show up. She just straight up doesn't show up. She doesn't call. She doesn't write. She's just like, nope. A, a little vague as to exactly what happened uh, per her lawyer. She didn't know about the court date, but uh, there was apparently some sort of confusion about stuff that came to light last week and uh they had tried to reschedule yet again prosecutors had been willing but it didn't work out the rescheduling and she couldn't come um due to uh, prior commitments 
Um, Musical things. Musical. Yes, yes. Uh, Prosecutors, they wanted her um, brought in to court um, on a bench warrant immediately. The judge basically said, hey, I'm going to give her one last chance to get here. She's got to be here Friday at 9 a.m. or else I will issue a bench warrant to bring her in. So she's got one more chance, and that's this Friday. Yeah. Friday the 7th? Yeah. Okay. Oh, is it this sep- Yeah, that sounds uh, Friday. Friday, whatever number Friday. Right. Is. This Friday, December seventh, Cardi B needs to be at the courthouse. She needs to because the judge said he is very likely to issue a bench warrant for her arrest. V likely. V likely. And uh, you know, and if you're taking the train from you know any place other than Queens, I leave an hour, hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, so especially if you're taking the train. Yeah, if you're taking the train. Because um, we all know the MTA is kind of fucked up right now. <laughs> yeah. Always, always try and make your court dates, kids. Yeah. <laughs> uh, early last week, uh, we had embattled rapper Takashi69. Uh, he was brought up on racketeering charges related to the uh, gang activity. Uh, uh, you know, it's funny. It's like we always have to say alleged with court things. There's always kind of weird acrobatics to say alleged gang activity if someone's like always posting on social media like, hey, like I'm in this gang. But, you know, <laughs> for uh, for legal purposes, alleged gang activity, probably the the most comical thing in court was when uh, the judge asked the attorneys to effectively explain gangster rap rivalry. Mm. Yeah. I wish I had been a fly on the wall (laughs) during that, like, linguistic gymnastic performance. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because he was trying to, the judge was trying to suss out, well, how exactly would it work that Takashi would perform, there was a planned Barclays uh, performance that didn't happen because of some gunfire. So he, the judge was trying to figure out, well, so Takashi was going to perform before one boxer, but a rap rival was going to perform before an, the other boxer. There's a little bit of an attempt to explain, like, yes, like, rivals could perform at the, at the same function. Have you ever heard of these hip-hop cops? I know this is a sidestep, but there's, like... No. I, it's this rumor that, like, the N, there, in the NYPD, there was, like, cops specifically assigned to like hip-hop beef at clubs on the west side of new york that is amazing i mean i don't even know if i should be talking about this right now i just heard it i heard it from whispers in the wind through the streets she read about them in the new york post page six new york (laughs) post i mean if you are readily admitting that they're whispers in the wind I think you have enough of a caveat to still be speaking responsibly. I yeah. think you're you're good. Mm-hmm. You're fine. Prove yeah. to me it doesn't exist. Beyond all, sh- what is it called? Shadow of a doubt? I think so. Yeah. Twelve. I saw 12 Angry Men. I saw 12 Angry Men on Broadway <laughs> a very long time ago. Oh, I thought you were going to say I saw 12 Angry Men walking down the street <laughs> on Broadway, but you mean on theatrical Broadway. <laughs> it was when Broadway had non-cartoon things. Mm. All right. <clears throat> And that's in the courts with Victoria. <laughs> Big campus. There you go. Hey. 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 <laughs> news. 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 New York City. Here's some other stuff you might want to know about what's going on in New York City so you could talk about it this weekend at your holiday party that you're attending. Andy Byford, the guy they brought in to fix the MTA, has proposed some weird stuff that executives and administrators go and randomly ride the subway and bus and and form blockades to stop people 
from jumping turnstiles or sneaking on buses, and that those people, those administrators and executives, would be backed up by the cops. NYPD Commissioner James O'Neill said he was actually open to the idea. I think he started as a transit cop himself. Byford also brought up that congestion pricing could pay for some of the new stuff we need to happen with the MTA, but it wouldn't be enough, and he wants a fair hike. City Council was not happy about that. The Daily News reports a Chapin School sophomore got more than 11,600 signatures on a petition that asks Cuomo to sign a bill into law requiring private schools to report allegations of sexual abuse. And in sports, 36-year-old second baseman Robbie Kano, A-Rod's old steroid pal, now in the back of his career, is back in New York, this time with the Mets after underperforming in a five-season exile to some other place. Well, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. FAQ NYC is brought to you by a grant from Civil, a media company using the blockchain to reinvent the economics of journalism. FAQ NYC is also headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU. This podcast was recorded in producer Alex Brooklyn's rent-regulated apartment and mixed and mastered by Adam Kamara. We'd also like to give a special thank you to Erica Vladimir and Leah Ebert for speaking with us so candidly on this episode. News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. F-A-Q.